episode 76, Window to the World. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a March 11th, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair. At the turn of the century, St. Louis was a city on the move, and Kansas was along for the ride. In 1904, St. Louis hosted an international exposition to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase and the opening of the American West. For such an occasion, huge buildings were constructed of paper mache, the Olympic Games were conducted, and a giant cow was sculpted from butter. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I as we examine a stained glass window from the Kansas building of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. Then, we delve into the macabre when we connect William Allen White, a writer from Emporia, Kansas, to Lizzie Borden, an infamous hatchet-wielding murderer from Massachusetts. While White's autobiography was awarded the Pulitzer Prize, Borden's story was forever burned into the memories of little girls when it became a haunting jump rope rhyme. But first, window to the world. Good afternoon, Michaela. Hello, Mo. Today we are going to discuss a stained glass window that was featured above the doorway at the Kansas Building in the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, Missouri. The window is uh, semicircular and depicts an image similar to the Kansas State Steel Seal. I guess you know, it is the seal. Pretty much. But um, it's uh, flanked by some scrolled glass panels and prisms. Um, and the window is framed in some white painted wood. That's right. In the late 19th and early 20th century, hosting a World's Fair was uh, was a pretty big deal for any city. In fact, uh, there was typically some stiff competition between cities. What was a World's Fair and why were cities fighting for them? Well, Merle, the official name of World's Fairs is the Universal Exposition. And they're essentially a huge expo or exhibition where countries and states and companies um, can display their abilities in manufacturing goods, commodities, science and technology, art, stuff like that. Just so it's just a big fair showing off science and pretty much, technology. Yeah. And, all right. Yeah. Um, while exhibitions similar to a World's Fair have been staged since the 1750s, the first one that we would recognize as a World's Fair today was held in London in 1851. It was called the Great Exhibition, and it was the idea of Prince Albert, who most of us know was the husband of Queen Victoria. He built the big Crystal Palace. That's for that, right. Didn't he? That's what it's known for is the Crystal Palace, which was a huge pavilion of iron and glass that was located in Hyde Park in London. It housed over 14,000 exhibitors from around the world who showed off their country's advances in the Industrial Revolution. So that kind of set up the tradition of what a World's Fair would be. And that continued up until this day. You can still go to a World's Fair. Um, the reason Where why was last year's? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> it's probably like Toronto or yeah, something. Yeah, I know that if you want to plan ahead in the 2020s, there's supposed to be one in Houston and another in New York City. So if you want to start you know, saving up your money to go to, go to a World's Fair, they still happen. 
Um, cities generally fight to host World's Fairs for two reasons. First, um, they want the opportunity to show off all the things we were talking about before. A, a city wants to show that they are advanced, they are you know, technologically capable, they are a thriving city that can compete with any other city in the world. And secondly, World's Fairs provide a huge economic boost. If you think about it, especially in their heyday, literally millions of people traveled to these cities to see the things at the fair. And usually they spent multiple days there because, well, in the case of the St. Louis World's Fair, it would take you a month to see all the exhibits. Now, nobody stayed that long, but they might go and stay a week. And when people are there, they have to have a place to stay. They have to eat. They're going to shop, you know, do do all kinds of things that help support the economy of that city. So while it cost a lot of money to put them on, they were also big money makers. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're like, I mean, they're a huge cultural attraction in the late 19th early 20th and even still today they're a huge cultural attraction like there's Mm -hmm. there is it's like the olympics and the world cup are the only things that compete with with the amount of people that these world's fairs draw that's right what um can you tell me like there's been some really sort of famous world's fair there's been tons of them but there's there's only really a handful of them that stick out sure probably like the one i mentioned the 1851 great exhibition with the Crystal Palace. That one's pretty recognizable. Um, the 1889 World's Fair in Paris, recognizable because that's when they built the Eiffel Tower. And it's strange to note, the French people hated the Eiffel Tower. They thought it was an eyesore. Mm-hmm. And when the fair was over, they wanted to tear it down. So the thing we you know we picture when we think <laughs> of Paris. That is Paris, yeah. you know? um, That's from a World's Fair. We think of um, 1893 in Chicago. That was a pretty, you know, that was kind of the standard bearer for a long time of what a World's Fair was supposed to be. Um, we think of 1904 in St. Louis, maybe because the movie was, you know, made. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it was a, it was huge. It was the biggest, and still is the biggest World's Fair that was ever staged. And then more recently, we might think of New York in the 1960s, Seattle in 1962. That gave us the Space Needle. So there, mm-hmm. yeah, there have been some pretty big World's Fairs. Mm-hmm. In 1904, St. Louis, Missouri hosted a World's Fair, which turned out to be one of the largest in history. It was the largest in its time period. That's right. Um, uh, why St. Louis? Wasn't St. Louis basically just a cow town in 1904? Well, that's what the people of St. Louis wanted to to conquer, that idea, when they, when they wanted to host the World's Fair. People did think St. Louis was a cow town. They thought cow town, dirt streets, you know, like Dodge City, you know. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the way people think of Kansas now, that's what they thought of St. Louis in 1904. Yeah. Well, in 1904, St. Louis was, um, especially in the late 19th century, 1800, St. Louis was pretty much the edge of civilization. Sure. I mean, yeah. that was this, that was really the last major city. Before were, the West. Before the West. Yeah. So um, it's always kind of walked that fine line of an eastern city or a western city, of a cow mm-hmm. town or a city of culture. Right. Um, so they felt 1904 was their time to bust out. You know, this is when they were going to prove, hey, we are a bona fide city city. Um, When the city got approval to host the fair, they did have work to do. St. Louis was not quite up to the point they wanted to be at to show off to the world. So um, there weren't enough hotels to house all the visitors. They had to build more. Streets had to be completed and the water system had to be cleaned up. And neighborhoods around the park where they were going to have the fair had to be brought up so that, you know, the fair wasn't being held like in a slum or something like that. They wanted everything to look good. Um, To do this, the city of St. Louis and the federal government each put up $5 million, and another $5 million was raised through the sale of stock in the exhibition company. So you're looking at $15 million in 1904 uh-huh. to stage a World's Fair. It's a lot of money. Um, not only St. Louis, they weren't the only ones who wanted to show that they you know, were up and coming, that they were a legitimate city. 
The western half of the United States also wanted to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase, which happened in 1803. As we know, um, the U.S. purchased a good portion of the central part of the United States from France in that year. And the fair was meant to be held in 1903 to mark the 100th anniversary of that, but they had some delays, things weren't getting done, so they went ahead and postponed it until 1904. And in a, you know, this was an opportunity for not only St. Louis to show that they were modern, but also for the Western United States to show, yeah, we're an important part of this country. Look how much we do. Look, you know, we are, we're here, and we're, we're you know, prosperous. Mm-hmm. So in 1904, it, it just didn't happen to be a good year for St. Louis. Like there was some symmetry there. Just like the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago is known as the Columbian Exposition right. because it was 400 years of Columbus discovering the New World. Right. St. Louis was what was I mean? It's it was it's the also Louisiana as, Purchase Exposition. Yeah, yeah, celebrating. Yeah, the hundredth anniversary, and more importantly, this was an opportunity for the entire United States to show that it was, you know, a potential world power. And also they wanted to show people what it was to be an American. What were the things that made us who we were at that time? So as a result of all of this, the main theme of the exhibition was progress. And um, this was a little unusual. the main theme of every one of the fairs? Well, before that, the theme had... um, they usually focused on products and the goods themselves, like what was being produced. And this was the first one that kind of focused on this, you know, this idea or concept, this notion. And, you know, everybody was trying to show how they were progressing. Mm-hmm. So, If I went to the fair, what would I have seen that would have impressed me? Well, as we mentioned before, many fairs did have one iconographic structure that we still associate with the host city, like the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Or in 1893 in Chicago, you had the Ferris wheel being introduced. The first ever Ferris wheel. The first ever Ferris wheel, which was actually built as an observation type thing. So mm-hmm. you could go in the Ferris wheel. When you got to the top, you could see the entire fairgrounds, and it was very impressive. Um, and in 1962, Seattle got the Space Needle. Mm-hmm. So we think of those things, and we associate them with the host city. Um, the Ferris wheel did make a reappearance in St. Louis. They used the exact same wheel that was used in Chicago, and at the end of the fair, it was demolished. So it's probably looking a little rough by then. Yeah, probably. It had seen a lot of riders in that time. Um, probably the sheer size of the St. Louis fair would have impressed you. There isn't really one building that was, or one structure that was iconographic. Um, it, the size of the fair was twice as big as Chicago's, and Chicago's was huge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had the, the construction of 1,500 buildings in a park to house, you know, pavilions and what they called palaces. And right. That, and that's significant, too. I mean, they would build a World's Fair at that time period. You basically built a city within a city. Exactly. You built these huge neoclassical structures. Out of essentially paper mache. Out of paper mache, because <laughs> they were only supposed to last for a year, and then right, they were all supposed right. to come down. And there were three buildings that survived the St. Louis World's Fair that still exists in St. Louis today. Um, one of them houses um, build, uh, houses a department or administrative offices at Washington University in St. Louis. Another is an art museum, and I can't remember what the third one is. Sounds like a birdcage or something. Yeah, yeah, there is an aviary left. That's true. Um, so besides the size of it, um, it's important to note that St. Louis also hosted the first Olympic Games held on American soil that year. And they actually competed against Chicago to get the games held there because they felt that if the games were held anywhere else in the United States, it would detract attention from the fair. Right, which that's hugely significant, too. Like, it's it's um, one thing to hold a World's Fair, and then it's it's quite another event to host the Olympics. Right. And in 1904, you had both 
going on at the same time in the same city. Right. And the, which, the Olympics didn't necessarily have anything to do with the fair. They were just both there at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you can imagine during the time when the Olympics were there and the fair was there, it would have been insane exactly. in St. Louis. I mean, there would have been a lot of people visiting the city. By all accounts, uh, Kansas had a dis- disproportionately large presence at this particular fair. Um, why is that? Well, I have a couple of theories on this. First of all, um, if you think about it, the proximity of St. Louis to anywhere in Kansas is pretty close. Um, It would be reasonable for Kansas to stage a lot of exhibits there just because they could get stuff there pretty easily. Uh Um, At this time, much like St. Louis and the rest of the central part of the United States, Kansas wanted to show that, you know, it was legitimate, that we were contributing to the success of the United States. So they had exhibits in just about every building at the fair. Um, Obviously, um, agriculture was a big thing for Kansas. It won awards. They also had exhibits in mining and metallurgy, which was a surprise to some people because obviously people think Kansas, oh, wheat and corn, but that was one of their goals was to prove, hey, we're not just a wheat and corn state. Uh So they had exhibits about coal and salt and shale and lead that was all mined in in, uh, Kansas. And they had exhibits about horticulture, specifically cherries and apples, which proved that they were one of the leading producers in the country of those two things. I didn't know that. Yeah. And even though though they were trying to avoid the agriculture, agriculture angle. They did have huge displays in the agricultural agriculture building, including a life-size butter sculpture that was well, sculpted no, by a woman, you know, like right there live, you could see a woman sculpting butter. Well, no fair is a real fair without a huge butter sculpture. I know. That was one of the highlights of the Kansas State Fair. Always <laughs> has been. So I think it was an opportunity for Kansas to really prove itself, you know, to not only the rest of the nation, but to the world that it was important. This window, um, the window we're looking at, was used in the Kansas building. Um, uh, Who created it, and why did it end up featuring the Kansas seal? Well, we aren't sure who created it. I can't tell you. It's not a Tiffany original? (laughs) It's not a Tiffany. Surprise, surprise, not a Tiffany. Um, It does have some Tiffany-like qualities. It's got the little, like you mentioned before, the little prisms, kind of little jewel-looking things on it. While Tiffany made some windows that included those this is not a Tiffany window, <laughs> as much as we want it to be. I jo- we're joking, but I mean, I, I don't think anybody's honestly ever confused this no, with a Tiffany window. Never, never in the accession file has it said perhaps a Tiffany. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we don't we don't know for sure who created it, but we do know that the Kansas World's Fair commissioners bought it for five hundred dollars, which you know in nineteen oh four that was a, a sizable amount of money. Um, why the seal? It was a recognizable symbol to any Kansans that would be visiting the fair. You know, they would see it on the outside of their building. It was a point of pride. They would know that was their building. And um, also, I I feel that the images in the seal represent the progress that the fair was trying to promote overall. You know, you have the farmer farming the land. That shows, you know, progress in agriculture. There's a steamboat that shows progress in transportation and commodity. you know, there's a train in the background. There's a train. There's a covered wagon. You know, westward expansion. So it kind of the symbol played into all the things that the fair was trying to promote, and Kansas was willing to go along with that in decorating their building. You researched many accounts of the fair, and you noticed that Kansas consistently received notice and attention for one particular <laughs> feature at the fair. What was that feature? Two words: indoor restrooms. 
<laughs> I don't know why, but the, it is the the Kansas building at the 19 World's Fair, 1904 World's Fair, is the only building that in every source I looked at cited it as having ladies' restrooms. <sighs> and I thought that was a little strange, but, you know... If you go to a fair now, the restrooms are not quality. And this was a nice building. It was also, it was um, complimented as being one of the most home-like buildings where you could go and you just could relax and, you know, hang out and kind of, you know, there was a nursery there where they'd watch your kids. It was a place to wind down. So the bathrooms were probably pretty nice. And maybe that's why they were so excited. But, yeah, indoor restrooms were the highlight of the Kansas building. Well, in some ways it makes sense. I mean, you go to these amazing World's Fair and you expect to be impressed with, you know, the Eiffel Tower And uh, the Space Needle. But by golly, what is it the one thing you're really looking for? A decent restroom. It's just a clean bathroom (laughs) to use. That's true. And Kansas can provide. Excellent. (laughs) All right, Nikayla, thanks for telling us about this stained glass window and the 1904 World's Fair. You're welcome. Now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today, as usual, is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And making her uh, virgin appearance uh, oh, on Six my. Degrees of William Allen White <laughs> thank is you. reference librarian <laughs> Teresa Coble. Yes, hello. Thank you. <laughs> this week, we take a stab at the macabre as we attempt to connect the innocent and good-natured William Allen White, the newspaper man from Emporia, Kansas, to the mysterious patricidal woman from Massachusetts named Lizzie Borden. You may be familiar with Lizzie because uh, her alleged actions were immortalized in a jump rope rhyme. Uh, that goes a little something like... Take it, Merle. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. It is very catchy. It is, <laughs> yes. yeah. Such a happy jump <laughs> Exactly, yeah. Um, so, a little, gen- a little general background on Ms. Borden. Um, she was the spinster daughter of a wealthy and surprisingly well-connected Massachusetts family. On August 4th, 1892... Andrew and Abby Borden, the father and stepmother, I believe, mm-hmm. of uh, Lizzie Borden, they were murdered in their home, and the murder weapon was a hatchet. Horrifying. The, <laughs> Gross. The, the only other people present in the house was the 32-year-old daughter, Lizzie, and maid, Bridget Sullivan. Um, Lizzie actually discovered the body, oh, well, her father's her father's body. Uh, the bodies were in two separate rooms, which really brings up a very interesting... Uh, interesting insight into the murders. Two people murdered in separate rooms with a hatchet. There was, there had to be a struggle, right? Like, One would think with the hatchet. And there's two other people in the house that don't hear any of it going on. Um, mm-hmm. Very convenient. Awesome. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And also, no blood anywhere except like on the bodies. You know, Lizzie Borden dressed didn't have blood on it. That's very. I don't it's understand it. I don't the housekeeper would know how to clean. That is, that is true. I don't think anybody brought up that argument at the trial. So wash clothes like nobody's business. <laughs> so Lizzie, uh, Lizzie was tried for murder. They, they, they were um, suspicious, just like us. But she was acquitted of all charges. Um, the trial became the first sort of publicly scrutinized and popularized trial of the media. It was one of the first to account for modern forensics as well. Um, they started integrating things like fin- fingerprinting. Um, 
Uh, since then, it has taken on folklore status, evolving into multiple books, musicals, uh, ballet, <laughs> and movies. Um, Ooh, but my, my favorite of the plays was Lizzie Borden, A Tale in Two Acts, and not A-C-T-S-A-X-E. <laughs> I love it. It's, uh, so, yeah, people can get creative with it, I guess. <laughs> So there's some theories to what really took place that night, um, at least two of them that I wrote down anyway. Um, the first theory is that the maid did it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you guys know what, what, the, what the maid's motivation was? She was angry because she had to clean the windows that day, inside and out, and rightly so. And rightly so. <laughs> Ventilation. Yeah, yeah, not so much. <laughs> I think uh, the chemicals from the cleaning solution may have. Pushed her yes. Yeah, yeah it wasn't like she had Windex or something <laughs> that smelled nice. Well, that um, convoluted theory is almost as bad as the next one. Uh, the other theory revolves around an illegitimate paternal half-brother, I don't really even know what that is, um, named William Boyd. Gordon, uh, he killed the parents uh, as a revenge killing for his failed efforts to extort money from his father. Yeah. I don't know how they concluded yeah. that. Yep. But, uh, Teresa, I believe you have a solution. You have a way to connect William Allen White to Lizzie Borden. I do. I do. So, uh, all right. Uh, Lizzie Borden was friends and may have been uh, romantically... Uh, uh, linked. Linked, thank you, <laughs> to uh, an actress named Nance O'Neill. Oh, Nance O'Neill appeared in the film version of Cimarron, not to be confused with the spice cinnamon. So, uh, the film Cimarron was based on the novel uh, Cimarron by Edna Ferber. Hey, and we know Ferber uh, was best friends forever with <laughs> William Allen White. I don't know if they had the little heart thing. I bet know. they did. Right, right. I bet they did. So that is my connection. That's, That's quite impressive. Very good. Quite impressive. And Nikayla, I, I believe you also have a have a solution. I do. Well, Lizzie Borden was supposedly. A distant cousin of the actress Elizabeth Montgomery. Yes, yes, Samantha hey. from Bewitched. Yep, yep. They're distant relatives. Distant cousins, sixth cousins, I think. Yeah, and and ironically, Elizabeth Montgomery played Lizzie Borden in like the made-for-TV film version of the Lizzie Borden story. Right, she knew she was related, right? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Um, Otherwise, that's a really weird coincidence. Yeah. So. Elizabeth Montgomery was the daughter of the actor Robert Montgomery, and Robert Montgomery directed and was the, um, he was the uncredited director and starred in the movie They Were Expendable, and that movie was based on a book by William Lindsay White, and William Lindsay White is the son of William Allen White. Intriguing. Yes. Something a little, it's a little too easy to connect uh, William Allen White to Lindsay Borden. Yeah, we had four solutions. And one of them did involve Teddy Roosevelt, (gasps) which was the shortest of them. But I know our listeners get tired of Teddy, so Uh, I didn't. So best not to even bring it up. That's right. (laughs) There you go. We've gotten bad PR about that. We have. (laughs) All right. uh, Well, Teresa, would you like to share what the uh, challenge for the next episode is going to be? All right. Sure, Merle. Uh, In the next episode, uh, we are going to go into lockdown as we search Mm. for the Birdman of Alcatraz. Uh, We want you to connect William Allen White to Robert Franklin Stroud, one of the prison's more infamous inmates. For a few years, Stroud lived in Kansas, and unfortunately, his address was the maximum security prison at Leavenworth. (laughs) (laughs) Leavenworth's a nice town. Leavenworth prison, not. Not so great. So if you think you you can connect William Allen White to a creepy inmate with a a penchant for birds, just send your chain of connections to podcasts at KSHS.org. That is podcast with an S. And Teresa, thanks for helping out today. My pleasure. Thank you. Any place but there, we will dance the hooch
that concludes episode 76, Window to the World. If you would like to see images of this impressive stained glass window that was not made by Tiffany, just go to our website and click on podcast. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and I delve into the merchant trade on the high seas when we examine an oar used by flatboat operators to carry goods across the Kansas River. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Thank you.